Hey there, and welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Patrick Kiesling, and today we will be discussing applying to ENT residency. Joining me today are two otolaryngology residency program directors who will be providing some insight into the application process, as well as how this year will be different from past application cycles. From the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, we have Dr. Janelle Stoken, and from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan, we have Dr. Mark Thorne. Dr. Stoken and Dr. Thorne, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So this application cycle is different from others in a lot of ways due to the COVID-19 outbreak. First, away rotations were essentially canceled other than for applicants who don't have a home program. Then virtual interviews became the expected scenario for the coming months. And then the e-rest deadline was pushed back as well. So I think it's easy for applicants to feel overwhelmed in such unprecedented circumstances. But it's also uncharted territory for program directors, too. So we really appreciate any insight that you're able to give us at this stage of everyone's preparations for this coming cycle. Now, I know that there are a lot of different topics we want to address, so we'll break this conversation down by stage of the application process. So first, let's talk about preparing for the application cycle, where many students are at right now. So while students are beginning this process, what are some elements of the application that, in the midst of all of these changes, you will continue to emphasize and that you think are important for applicants to focus on? So I guess in less words, what does a successful application look like? So I think a successful applicant can look different for many reasons, and this application shouldn't be too much different than prior years. I think in general, we look for people who have a strong interest in our field and can show that um, through good grades, um, good letters, good scores on their tests, interest by showing they have at least participated in some uh, research activities in our field. There will be some challenges this year as uh, people will have access to less letter writers from across the visiting rotations that they normally do. Um, so I think this year we'll, we'll welcome some letters from people um, that they work a little more closely with at their home programs and potentially letters from um, other surgical subspecialties or rotations that they participate in um, due to the deficiency in visiting rotations. I think that's a great answer already provided. I will admit that I find this question a bit of a challenge to answer really for two reasons. The first is that I think it's important that programs engage in holistic review of applications for their residency programs. Holistic review is really a mission aligned process that considers a broad range of factors, experiences, attributes, and academic metrics. This process by definition really requires that the programs uh, consider their goals thoughtfully. And once they define those goals, then the selection committee can broadly consider the range of factors that they believe best predicts applicant success within their program at achieving their missions. The other thing that I think is a challenge is that one of the values of this selection approach is that it kind of reduces inappropriate emphasis on some limited number of factors. And I recognize that this uh, doesn't translate very well into helpful kind of actionable advice uh, for the students that we would certainly very much like to support through an application process that has been, as you alluded to, made even more stressful by all of the challenging circumstances currently. What I think I can do is kind of give an N of one answer and tell you about how we approach applications. 
Uh, although it always makes me feel a bit pompous when I say it out loud, but the mission of our training program pulls a phrase from our university's fight song. So as we aim to train the next generation of leaders and best in the field of otolaryngology, with leaders really defined fairly broadly. For me personally, that means that I'm looking for applicants who have demonstrated a history of excellent performance in the areas in which they have focused their efforts, looking for those who have taken advantage of the opportunities available to them, which includes a consideration of the concept of distance traveled or those who have been able to kind of do more with less, as well as evidence of intellectual curiosity, um, ideally within our field. But even if you've come to our field late, uh, seeing evidence of intellectual curiosity with the ability to ask and answer interesting questions or to make significant improvements in the systems within which those applicants are interacting. So within the context of this holistic application review, it seems that, at least from a medical student perspective, a lot of emphasis in competitive specialties gets placed on step one score. At least for this cycle, this is one of the last years that this score will be available for programs to use when assessing an applicant. Do programs have hard cutoffs for considering applicants, or how do you find this comes into play? Well, I think you're right in that the emphasis on step one scores, probably both for programs and applicants, uh, has traditionally been high in competitive specialties such as ours. I'll start with a broader statement about the implications of step scores, which uh, kind of says that there is generally a lack of predictive ability uh, for clinical performance based on step one scores. And so, uh, you know, the stress that both uh, the students place on performance on these tests, as well as the uh, weight that they're given in considering applications are probably significantly higher than they should be. Even further, my chair likes to quote that there's some evidence of a possible negative correlation uh, among those with the very highest scores, and that if you score at the extreme high end, uh, clinical performance may actually uh, not be quite as strong. Um, although in full disclosure, I've not asked him to provide uh, references or to fact check him on that. I do think uh, this is a challenging situation for applicants and that I do suspect that there are programs that use cutoffs. However, those cutoffs are not typically available to the applicant, and therefore it makes it difficult for them both to gauge their uh, competitiveness overall, as well as their likelihood of um, being selected for an interview at any given program. For us, again, giving that end of one answer, we don't uh, utilize any uh, cutoff and, and don't tend to weight the step one scores very highly. Uh, the only thing that they are fairly effective at predicting is difficulty with future standardized test scores. And then again, only at kind of the extreme of performance. So I agree with that answer. Um, we as well are not using the step one score this year for hard cutoffs. We additionally have found that those scores don't correlate with anything but future test taking and don't by any means change our ability to see a good applicant. The step one score this year, I think, will be eliminated from our decision making process altogether. And the system that we have in place, as mentioned earlier, will look at applicants as a whole, looking at all the things they have to contribute to our program rather than um, just the score. What are some other non-academic features of an application that may stand out as important to you? Sure. Um, I think anything that a applicant can show that they're passionate about, whether it's research or a hobby or some other aspect of their life that they've 
found to be important to them. Um, that can really go a long way in their personal statement, in the interview, or um, in their application during our review. As I mentioned earlier, we look at this application from a systematic standpoint where we try to be objective um, to who gets an interview. And there's a sheet that we will fill out and has room for comments. And so on a review of an application, if there's someone who has a strong interest in something and shows passion, hard work, dedication to that hobby or interest, uh, we'll make note of that. And that will definitely play into who we ask to come visit our program. Well, I, I suspect that Dr. Stoken will have said it better than I, but uh, I would echo those same comments. I think uh, we'd like to look for applicants who have uh, demonstrated uh, a sustained and significant uh, commitment to some area. And, uh, and I also, uh, I guess, take that one step further, especially in the personal statement. I find it most compelling when applicants can identify uh, those personal statements or qualities uh, that have allowed them uh, to be successful in the past, uh, that have uh, tapped into uh, you know, their passions uh, and also into where they see themselves uh, going in their academic career. And then how uh, the training, um, either in our program or more broadly in otolaryngology, will uh, take advantage of those qualities, will tap into those passions, and will uh, allow them to continue to enjoy the same levels of success that they've had uh, previously. When we consider letter writers, are there any must-haves, or is this pretty flexible? So, for example, are all programs expecting letters from the home program chair or the program director? And uh, as Dr. Stoken mentioned, what are uh, thoughts about having non-ENTs write letters of recommendation? I think that's a great question, especially for this year where there will be more limited uh, away rotations and therefore more limited access to uh, potential letter writers. In general, what I would advise applicants is that they really want letters from those who can speak to their positive attributes based upon personal experiences that they've had uh, with the applicant. And so those letters uh, will typically be able to convey the most information and therefore have the best chance of increasing your competitiveness in terms of the application and match cycle. Uh, this year especially, I think, will mean uh, more letters uh, from non-otolaryngologists especially, again, those that you've spent significant time with uh, or have had meaningful uh, relationships with. My experience is that most applicants will um, go through the cycle with letters um, from their chair, although by no means is this uh, universal. I do think there is uh, some value in terms of name recognition as uh, selection committees review uh, letters of recommendation partially perhaps because um, it gives a little bit of a framework uh, against which to judge um, what is written in each of those letters as each letter writer tends to have a somewhat personal style. I guess uh, what this maybe translates to in terms of advice is that uh, students uh, should seek out opportunities to interact and have experiences with um, those faculty members in their institutions that have those uh, kind of more recognizable names or are in those uh, positions of authority. Yeah, I have to admit that that's a fantastic answer that was just provided. I don't have a lot to add other than we really agree that 
a letter that shows you've worked with a person who's writing the letter is much more beneficial than one um, that you get just because you feel like you need to have it in your application. And what is your advice for applicants without home programs, especially during this cycle? Yeah, this is particularly important this year. In general, I would recommend that any applicant without a home program seek out one or two other programs where they can gain experience and work with people one-on-one to get those letters. As we all know, this year that is being allowed for people without home programs. So I hope that everyone can find a place to make these connections, work on research projects, and get to know at least one ENT program in the country. On top of that, I know there are several programs who are offering virtual experiences us included, we will be offering an interaction where residents who have applied to do a virtual rotation here can still experience some of our lectures. They themselves will be able to provide a lecture that will let us get to know them to some extent. We also have an extensive online library of interactive podcasts and surgical videos and learning material that people are welcome to look at and review Um, And lastly, if you have a program in particular that you really have an interest in, I encourage you to reach out to that program director or the program coordinator and see if they can put you in touch with someone in that program who can help you learn more about the city, the facilities, um, and the interactions that the group has prior to submitting your application. I would like to express that although there are clear challenges for applicants applying from medical schools without a home otolaryngology program, those challenges are by no means insurmountable. As uh, Dr. Stoken mentioned, uh, the expectation is that uh, programs would allow for away rotations for applicants uh, without a home program. And so seeking out those programs, especially those uh, closer to you regionally, uh, would be the first step. Uh, to take in order to uh, both gain additional exposure, uh, but also to gain additional access to uh, mentors in the field and those that can help become your advocates as you navigate the application process. Similarly, we are uh, looking, and I expect that many programs will be looking to try to replace uh, certain aspects uh, that applicants would uh, traditionally have taken advantage of with away rotations. And there are really, I think, several of those. The away rotations allow applicants to learn more uh, about programs. And so we are uh, at Michigan putting together what we're calling a virtual uh, sub-internship, but really is um, an opportunity for us to uh, provide information to applicants about what our program is like uh, so that they can determine whether um, our program kind of fits uh, their needs and their desires for training. We're also uh, looking into, and I may shamelessly steal some uh, of those ideas from Dr. Stoken in terms of uh, providing an experience uh, for those applicants who had uh, applied to do away rotations for us in terms of giving them a platform uh, to interact more with our residents and with our faculty so that we can then get to know them uh, better um, and have a better understanding of who they are as people and as applicants. And for our last question for the preparing for the application cycle section of the interview, if students are designed to take a research year, usually this occurs between third and fourth year for many applicants, but not all. What are you looking for from these applicants? 
So I suppose my first advice uh, to applicants uh, looking to uh, potentially uh, take a year off or do a research here is to think very carefully uh, about the reasons uh, that they're doing it. If uh, having a year uh, dedicated to research will significantly build skills that you are confident uh, you will want in your career, and if uh, they will significantly allow you to meet the the goals that you have for your career, um, then by all means, uh, go ahead and pursue that opportunity. Uh, but if um, if research is not something that you see yourself uh, doing as part of your career, um, then I'd strongly consider you to um, kind of reconsider the plan and to move forward uh, with the application cycle this year. Um, you know, certainly I can speak uh, for myself, but I also think for other program directors and that, you know, we are here, we are um, uh, looking um, to uh, bring in the next generation of otolaryngologists in this upcoming uh, match cycle. And, uh, and we will do everything that we can to uh, help you be uh, successful uh, as we all learn together and navigate uh, a process with uh, virtual interviews and other changes uh, that we haven't used used in the past. So in general, for applicants that do elect to take an additional year, either for a research or a degree experience, what I'm looking for is that they take advantage of that year and use it to uh, the best of their ability uh, so that they are productive uh, during that time, uh, that they are building uh, skills uh, and abilities that they um, then uh, are able to articulate how they will use uh, both during their training, but more importantly, throughout their career. All right, and moving on to the interview process. Obviously, this year will be quite different with virtual interviews now being a new experience for all of us. From what you can predict about the process now, what sorts of things do you think you'll be looking for in a virtual interview, and how do you recommend applicants prepare for these? Yes, the virtual interview this year is uncharted territory for all of us. In general, I think we will be looking for similar things that we have been looking for in the past with the interview process. And obviously, there's room for us to be creative with this. When we do face-to-face -face interviews, we often take the opportunity to look for surgical skills in our applicants, ask questions and get to know our applicants and showcase our hospital or our um, city so that people know what life would be like if they were to become residents at our program. This year, we will have to do some things to make that um, a little easier to do online. Uh, and this may include videos of each other and our city to showcase the things that we think are important. I would hope that Many programs will be providing more information along these lines, and I think some of that has already been published. So the best thing I could recommend for applicants to do on top of their normal preparation is to seek out this information and watch it and get to know the program as best as possible before the virtual interview. On the day of the virtual interview, we will likely perform similar two or three-on-one interviews with applicants in a Zoom-type setting. Uh, and we often look for things that we've talked about already today, things that people are passionate about, ask applicants about their research and um, the things that they find that will be of interest to them in their residency training and in their career. Another thing I can't stress enough about the interview is to get to know the program's attendings or the physicians that work there uh, as it really shows 
you have an interest in that program and what they have to offer. And whenever we see an applicant who's interested in us, we tend to take the extra time to find interest in them. Again, I think those are are great answers. I think that from the applicant's perspective, preparation for virtual interviews would not look all that different from preparation for in-person interviews. The few pieces of advice I suppose I would give are to, uh, one, uh, recognize that every interaction that you have with a program is part of the evaluation process. And so even though it should go without saying, you should be uh, kind and professional in all of your interactions, uh, not only with the faculty with whom you're interviewing, but with the uh, program coordinators and others with whom you come into contact. Another piece of advice is to practice. Uh, And so, uh, like many things, interviewing is a practice skill, and uh, there's probably some aspects of interviewing uh, virtually or remotely uh, that are also a practice skill. And so, uh, find faculty in your program who might be willing to do a practice interview with you. Uh, If you uh, can't do that, uh, you know, find a a friend or loved one who uh, would be willing to sit on the other end of a Zoom call and ask you some questions and have you answer them. I think that uh, just going through that process can sometimes uh, be helpful and make you feel more at ease in that kind of an environment when it comes time uh, to interview. And then perhaps, uh, you know, finally, from that standpoint, uh, just be yourself. Um, That's what uh, interviews are often uh, used for, is for programs to get a sense of who the applicants are as a person uh, and to uh, get an understanding uh, potentially of uh, how um, their personality, how their interaction style fits within the personality or the style of the program. There are probably a few things that are, you know, kind of specific uh, to uh, a virtual or remote interview in that uh, you want to spend some time to make sure that uh, you have the appropriate software and that it is uh, connecting appropriately. Um, You can think a little bit about uh, ideal uh, lighting um, so that you show up um, in a way uh, on the the Zoom interview or other um, uh, virtual video format um, so that the folks who are interacting with you can uh, can see you and can get a sense of those uh, you know nonverbal interactions that come during conversations. And that will be important. And as Dr. Stoken mentioned a bit earlier, some students are already worried about getting a feel for the area, the hospital, and the culture of a program without being there in person. So you mentioned a couple of things, but how do you recommend that they seek out this information in other formats? I think there's a few things that applicants can do. I would expect that most programs in their interview day will identify or provide some opportunities for the applicants to interact with the residents in a less formal kind of setting. Uh, For our applicants, I will uh, typically joke that uh, I can provide the uh, kind of uh, 10,000-foot view of our program and how I think uh, it works and uh, and how I think it should be. And then when they talk to the residents, they can learn how it actually works and and how it actually is. So having time to talk with the residents is certainly a, a key factor, I think, for the applicants. 
I think for the programs, uh, we have to be very thoughtful about how we're going to try to accomplish this. Um, as Dr. Stokin mentioned, I think many institutions will be uh, investing some resources in terms of how can we uh, provide uh, video tours or other things that give a, a better sense of what it, life is like in our communities um, so that applicants uh, can get that information. And uh, this uh, hopefully should be provided to the applicants rather than something that they actively need to seek out. I do think that there may be opportunities uh, for applicants uh, in terms of uh, performing what are so-called kind of second visits uh, or after the interview, going and visiting a, a town or program. I mentioned this with uh, significant reservations, though, uh, because I would uh, really hate to see applicants feel like uh, this is something that they need to do in order to be uh, considered um, or to be considered more highly uh, by any given program. But I think there may be aspects that uh, you know could be valuable for the applicant in terms of um, really just getting a better feel of, uh, of what a program looks like. For me personally, I uh, did my residency training at Michigan before uh, leaving uh, to, for fellowship and then coming back for a faculty position. I had uh, never before set foot in the state of Michigan prior to my interview day and uh, probably never saw myself uh, living in Michigan. Uh, and so having had the opportunity to uh, come and, and visit it myself was certainly uh, important for us, uh, for both um, my wife and I to determine whether this was a place that we could see ourselves uh, for our training. Yeah, I, in addition to the things I had mentioned earlier, we do hope to have many opportunities for applicants to interact with the residents virtually. I also know most of our residents have been very open to having communication outside of a webinar or email to those who are very interested. And so I anticipate there'll be um, open lines of communication between applicants in our group this year. I also was going to mention the idea of a second look, which we agree is something we don't want people to think is necessary to match in our program. We hope that there aren't rules in place to limit those opportunities for them. And so moving on to the period that occurs after interviews and creating a rank list, how is post-interview communication viewed in terms of what are your thoughts on thank you letters or requests for more information? This is a topic where I think the important thing to communicate is what the goal of the communication is. I definitely think programs would like applicants to communicate back if they have any questions or concerns or things that weren't answered during their interview process. And those are very well received and welcomed by the program coordinators or any of the people they interview with. I think routine thank you letters that are just sent because applicants think they're needed um, are not necessarily necessary. And I personally don't feel like I need a bunch of uh, thank you letters just uh, out of habit or out of necessity. We do like to hear from applicants who are interested and help guide them in, in any way that they, they need. Again, I would echo, I think, many of those sentiments. Uh, certainly, applicants should always feel free to reach out to programs when they have uh, questions or when they would like more information or some clarity around uh, some aspect of the program that may be important for them in terms of choosing uh, where they would like to do their training. 
Having said that, uh, you know, in general, I'd like to see there be uh, clearer rules and actually less uh, opportunities uh, for uh, interaction post-interview. Again, maybe thinking that uh, this year would be a significant exception to that. But uh, I generally find that uh, post-interview communication is um, uh, stressful uh, for the applicant and uh, really not uh, particularly value-added for either the applicant or the program. What I will typically tell applicants uh, on our interview day is that um, I do not want them uh, to uh, send thank you letters, uh, that they're uh, taking the uh, time, uh, the financial resources uh, to come and visit us is uh, thank you enough, and that uh, I recognize how busy they are, uh, both with their interview and application uh, cycle, but also in terms of trying to do the the very significant work of being a medical student uh, during that time. And so um, I would prefer uh, them not uh, communicate with us. And uh, and then that would also uh, just make it easier for me uh, not to uh, engage in any communication that could be, uh, you know, sort of potentially uh, seen as um, insincere or manipulative um, in terms of information about whether you know, we were particularly impressed with any applicant, and we are impressed with with really all of the applicants that uh, that come and meet with us. So, um, so I think uh, you know, in general, applicants should not feel that they need to uh, communicate with the programs. So, within that same vein of post-interview communication, we all understand that there are very well delineated match rules. Is it smart to declare to your top program that they are your number one, as long as you don't expect them to provide you with an answer back about your status on the list? Or how do you see that sort of communication following interviews? It's certainly not required. I think there may be advantages for an applicant if they do have a clearly identified number one program. Uh, Certainly, it gives me a warm and fuzzy feeling uh, when applicants reach out and let me know uh, where we stand on their rank list. Having said that, uh, by that time, I have uh, typically already completed uh, our rank list, and it has no impact in terms of uh, where you would end up. Uh, And so it, uh, it again, helps me feel warm and fuzzy and to feel like I've done a good job in terms of conveying the uh, strengths of our program, uh, but it doesn't um, it doesn't have an impact for us. And I suspect that is true uh, for many programs, but it may have an impact. Uh, it certainly is, I think, to programs advantage to um, uh, to some extent, to uh, have applicants who are um, most interested in their program, although the match will uh, generally uh, make that happen, um, certainly in the applicant's uh, advantage. The one thing that would be important uh, to note is that uh, that communication certainly should be uh, honest. You should not be sending communication to more than one program about the fact that they are your number one program. I agree. We tend to form our rank list here as a group. The entire interview committee will get together um, to make this list. And most of the communication that happens does occur after that point. And I agree, it makes me feel warm and fuzzy as well uh, to know that people we like also like us. But by no means, we do not expect it. And it does not change the list order for our program. And in the midst of this application cycle being a unique one, 
do you think that programs will have a bias towards students that they already know, specifically from their own home programs? Yeah, this is an interesting question. And my guess is, is that this stems from some social media posts or maybe data that has come from the last few interview cycles where people have matched places that they're either from or have done visiting rotations on. You know, I think the word bias is a hard one to swallow as we like people that we know, um, we want to see the best for them uh, and support them in any way possible. So I don't think we would be biased to them. We will look at the applicants in the same way as we always have with the same objective process that we have always used uh, and then support our students in the goals that they have for either matching with us or at other locations uh, around the country. Similarly, I um, don't know that there will be uh, any significant change or bias towards students um, that programs already know. Uh, I do think that uh, programs uh, have in the past and will continue to take advantage of the knowledge about um, the applicants that they know well in terms of whether those applicants would be a good fit or not for their training program. I do think what one thing that will be different is that many programs will know uh, fewer students. And so I think for most applicants, they'll be considered against a group where the programs have um, more similar amounts of information about each of the applicants uh, rather than a larger group of applicants uh, with whom uh, they have additional experiences and, and additional knowledge. When it comes to time to creating a rank list, applicants are often told to listen to their gut or think about what would be the best fit for them. What sort of advice can you provide to applicants regarding this significant task? Well, I think in general, that is good advice. Uh, when it comes to making really complex decisions, I think the human brain uh, doesn't do a really great job in terms of being able to list out uh, every single factor that is uh, kind of most important, uh, and then uh, being able to write out a formula or use some other method like a pro-con list that will produce um, you know, the very uh, best choice. Certainly, and maybe I should just speak for myself, but that's you know not how uh, I found my spouse. Um, and so I think uh, similarly for uh, trying to find um, the program that feels kind of most right for you, what I think applicants should do is to really think about those attributes of programs that will best fit uh, where they are looking to go in their career uh, and to gain as much knowledge as they can about how each program uh, fits uh, those attributes that they think are, will be most important for their future careers pull all of that knowledge in. Uh, but then once you pull all of that knowledge in, um, you know, let your uh, brain uh, kind of um, just percolate in that information. And, uh, and, you know, as they say, listen to your gut. And, uh, and I think your, your gut or, you know, more accurately, your um, uh, sort of neuronal connections will, will come up with the best answer for you. Yeah, I agree. I think back to when I was doing this process and you, will likely have a spreadsheet or notes or something that compares all the different attributes of the different programs. And it will become slightly overwhelming as you will like something better at one place than another. Uh, and the go with your gut is exactly like Dr. Thorne said. It's your brain's way of sorting that out you know, without a formula. Uh, so largely that's the advice I give people as well. 
you know, in the end, you want to become a good surgeon, you want to go into academic medicine, you want to go into private practice, those different things may help you, you know, find your best fit. But uh, I think the go with your gut is a, is a good way to go. Similarly, when uh, when I was uh, going through the process and had my spreadsheet um, and had the different attributes listed, what I found that I ended up doing was um, adjusting my scoring uh, for each of the attributes until it fit with what my gut was telling me anyway. Um, so, uh, so I think even if you aren't trying to use this advice, it, your brain will often make you do it anyway. And moving on to some of our last questions for looking at the application cycle in general, how do you handle couples match or what sorts of advice do you have for applicants that are a little bit daunted by that process? Is there any sort of connotation considered with applicants who are trying to couples match or just what sort of advice do you have for them in general? I have to say that when I see an applicant who is couples matching, I don't look at them in any way different than an, an applicant who is not couples matching. We occasionally have communication with the other department with whom the couple is trying to match with and may decide not to interview someone if the couple is not going to get an interview in that um, department. But I would say largely we still give the opportunity to people and don't consider their couple in any way uh, as there are people who choose to you know, try to match here or somewhere close to here, even if their couple doesn't match here. So I would say there's no connotation to that in any way. And um, we try to support people as best we can. Well, I was hoping to steal some good ideas that Dr. Stoken had, uh, because in truth, I either haven't um, been very clever or taken the time to be very thoughtful about it. Uh, but I often um, don't realize um, that applicants are couples matching until after we've uh, kind of gone through our process, which uh, in many respects, I think actually is is a good thing. Uh, so for us, similarly, um, the couples match status uh, really uh, doesn't have any significant impact. I think there are, though, uh, some advantages uh, for applicants um, uh, to alert um, uh, programs uh, that uh, they are couples matching. What I will do um, once we've elected to uh, interview um, an applicant who is couples matching is certainly when they alert me, uh, and even if they uh, haven't, um, my program coordinator will help us uh, kind of determine uh, who on our list is couples matching. And then I will uh, reach out to my colleagues colleagues uh, in those programs with really kind of an FYI of we are planning to interview this applicant and uh, we think they are a good fit for our training program. They're, um, they're uh, couples matching with applicant so-and-so and wanted to let you know in case that uh, allows you to provide them some extra consideration in terms of review of their application. Do you have any advice for applicants who did not match the first time around, such as this past year? Or what sorts of things do you recommend for people who are applying for a second time? I think this is uh, sometimes a challenging situation, uh, probably more challenging than it deserves to be. Uh, given the competitiveness of our specialty, I think there are times where uh, our interview and application process uh, leaves very well-qualified applicants uh, without a match in any given year. And uh, navigating that process again uh, can sometimes be even more difficult. I suppose my answer uh, harkens back a little bit to the question about uh, whether or not to take a year off. Um, 
in that uh, for uh, applicants who are planning to reapply, my advice is to determine um, uh, both where they want to be uh, with their career uh, and uh, and then um, try to identify opportunities that will uh, kind of help them get there. And so if they elect to take a year off for academic time, um, then uh, make sure that they identify experiences that fit with really where they want to go uh, with their career. So if they have a strong interest in clinical research, um, then find uh, mentors who do that kind of work and start to gain uh, valuable um, experience and expertise uh, doing that kind of work. If they have strong interest in basic research, then uh, then do the same. If they have a strong interest in uh, global health, then find a mentor or an opportunity that will help um, kind of build upon that um, so that um, they can build that story about where they are going with their career as they enter uh, the application cycle for the next year. In general, uh, I do think it's important that the applicants uh, kind of acknowledge and address um, the challenge of having not matched and how um, that fits into uh, both what they're doing now and where they're heading uh, for their career. Yeah, I agree with Dr. Thorne's advice. Uh, it is a very challenging thing for applicants uh, who are very likely qualified to be residents in an ENT program the first go around as this is a competitive field. I think the advice I would give people is to, one, do something to try to figure out why you didn't match. Sometimes it's not easy to see, but if you talk with one of your mentors or maybe the program director at a program you rotated at, you might be able to get some hints on where you can improve. And the next a bit of advice that I would give is do something meaningful with that time. If that is doing a, a general surgery or another intern year or a prelim year, you know, work really hard and get great letters and make sure that something is different with your application the next go around. Um, a lot can be said about a very strong letter that shows you were an outstanding intern and could do general surgery like a pro. Or if you're doing research, have a great research mentor write you a letter and show that you could be very productive in that research year that you um, took. The other bit of advice I might say is be yourself, practice interviewing. The next time you go to programs and show off who you are, they're trying to see you know, what makes you you. And sometimes that can be very intimidating and your nerves can make you, you know, not the person you want to show. And so like was mentioned earlier, practice and being comfortable with that process can really go a long way. And I might uh, just add on to that. I think if you do a, a general surgery or a prelim year, um, then take it upon yourself to uh, talk to your program director and uh, look into the opportunities to potentially rotate uh, as uh, an intern on otolaryngology um, so that you can do exactly as Dr. Stoken said, really demonstrate your ability to do the work uh, of being a resident in otolaryngology. Um, I think the a challenge uh, for um, program directors and for selection committees is that really the best um, predictor of future performance uh, in any given job is past performance in a very similar job. 
the great majority of applicants to our specialty um, are coming out of medical school and by definition then have not worked uh, as physicians in the past. And so uh, having the opportunity to kind of demonstrate um, your ability, your competence in that clinical environment uh, can also be a, a significant positive. Are there any important things that applicants should prioritize when looking at programs? So in other words, from your standpoint, what are the things that they should be looking for when trying to find the best training? I honestly think this is a very personal question. People learn in different ways and grow in different ways. And I think the different programs will provide different opportunities for becoming the best surgeon that you can. I think the better you know yourself, maybe the better you will be able to decide what will provide the best training. But in the end, you want a good knowledge of ENT. You want to have the most surgical cases and experiences that you can gather so that you feel comfortable going on to the next step, whether that's fellowship or private practice. If you're looking to be in academics, you want great opportunities to publish and different programs will have different opportunities for research funding and mentorship or research. If you're interested in things like global health, you definitely might seek out a program that has those opportunities over others. And so in the end, I think you really need to know what you want to do with your life and your career and use that to go back and look at the programs and what they had to offer in each of those realms. Well, I think that's, again, a great answer, and uh, and I've been uh, looking for an opportunity to uh, potentially disagree with Dr. Stoken, and I may have found one tiny sliver, but the first thing I would say is I absolutely agree with the idea of really thinking about uh, where it is you want to um, go in your career, uh, and then thinking about the attributes of the program uh, that will help you get there. Another thing along those lines is to look at what the graduates of a program are doing. If none of those uh, graduates are doing the kind of things that you want to do, it doesn't mean that that program couldn't be a good fit for you, uh, but it probably makes it a little bit less likely uh, if you're going to have to take a path uh, that is very different um, from what others um, have done in that training program. And then I do have a, a pet um, uh, sort of answer for this that will be, again, this, I think, slight disagreement with Dr. Sokin, because she had mentioned um, having a program where you do the most operative cases. I'll share that every year uh, since I became program director, I um, interview or I survey our um, applicants who have come uh, for their interview. And one of the things that I ask them is to uh, kind of rate the aspects of a training program uh, that they um, weigh most heavily as they consider um, uh, their rank list. And uh, what I find is that uh, every year, um, really consistently, um, I ask about eight or nine factors, uh, one of which is the uh, kind of clinical surgical experience. Uh, and the other, another one is the uh, clinical um, non-surgical experience. So your experience, um, you know, seeing patients in clinic and those kind of things. The surgical experience is, is almost universally rated at the very, very top. And the experience outside of the operating room is almost universally uh, rated uh, just above the kind of social um, uh, event in terms of how applicants are uh, considering their rank list. Um, 
I think it's important to point out, and I always struggle with this as I am kind of selling our program uh, to applicants, is that both of those aspects are, are really important, um, not only your surgical training, uh, but your uh, clinical training. I think that applicants, um, you know, they've been in clinics, um, they've seen patients, so it's much easier to um, see how you can become an even more uh, competent clinician outside of the operating room, but they've generally had very limited experiences to operate. Um, and so it, uh, it feels that much more important to really consider surgical volume. Um, but the caveat I would say is that, uh, you know, surgical volume, um, it's important. Um, certainly you don't want to be missing on key, um, experiences or opportunities, uh, but you also actually don't want your surgical volume to be so high so that you don't have the opportunity to, um, participate in uh, the kind of medical decision-making, the kind of medical treatments uh, that we provide for otolaryngology patients. Uh, you don't want it to be so high that you uh, can't uh, take advantage of the academic opportunities, uh, whether those are in um, sort of uh, traditional uh, research building uh, fund of knowledge or in uh, patient safety and quality or in global health. And so I think thinking explicitly about how programs kind of balance um, uh, providing both that operative experience and uh, those clinical experiences uh, can be uh, very important. I will, of course, agree to that. Surgical cases shouldn't take precedent over a well-rounded training. Well, before I wrap things up, is there anything else that you wanted to make sure to mention or any final advice that you would like to provide to applicants during this cycle in particular? Well, I think I may have said it earlier, but I think it's important for uh, all of the medical students interested in our specialty to know that we as program directors, you know, we're here, uh, that we are engaged and uh, ready to help you uh, navigate this process, um, even though it will uh, look differently uh, than it has in previous years, that we understand um, how stressful the process is uh, even in the best of times and that the current events have compounded uh, that stress for you um, but that uh, you know we're here uh, our programs are ready uh, to accept you and and so I hope that um, applicants will plan to complete their applications uh, plan to uh, come through the process because we're we're ready to uh, accept um, this next generation of uh, leading or learnologists yeah I I agree with dr. Thorne I I think Everyone's a little nervous from both sides this year, and I hope those applicants out here listening to this or out on social media, i just like to reassure them that we're doing everything we can to make sure they get an experience, and we're excited to meet them, you know, even if it's virtual, and try not to be nervous. It's nerve-wracking either way, but we'll get through this. Well, again, thank you so much to both Dr. Stoken from the Mayo Clinic and Dr. Thorne from the University of Michigan for taking the time to talk with us today about applying to ENT residency. We really, really appreciate it. The team behind ENT in a nutshell also encourages the listeners to check out headmirror.com for more information and resources for medical students, residents, and faculty. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.